<laughs> well, I guess that's one what's of the that, things about that? being live, isn't it? That buildings make noises. And I think that's just either heat or the floor moving through the sun or the radiators or something, the way the buildings move. So funny. So here we are as we get started. Yeah. It, you know, it's at the service of the designer. I'm turning that to a benefit, to benefit me and to benefit the students and to really think about history, and many would disagree with this, as precedent. How is history and why is history essential to the architect? Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Emmett Scanlon. In this episode, I am talking to Alan Rowley, an architectural and cultural historian, a teacher and a writer, and it has to be said, a rather prolific producer of books, writings, events and exhibitions about architecture and on and in Dublin in particular. In the episode, I invited Ellen not to start now, but to cast her mind back to how her interest in the city and its buildings evolved, to share where this comes from, what were the stops along the way that have taken her now to being recently appointed Assistant Professor in Modern Irish Architecture at UCD. Ellen talks about early connections with church architecture, trips from Dundrum to Glasnevin across Dublin city, the wonder of flats and odd houses when viewed from the car window, to a connection with history that began in Trinity College, took her to Cambridge, to Paris, to Keesler, and eventually to the concrete campus of UCD Belfield. Ellen is now working on understanding future potential uses and values that can be assigned to churches no longer in use, and is also working as editor on More Than Concrete Blocks Volume 3, all this is, I suppose, is an attempt to understand more about how we live our lives in the company of buildings and how our histories, both personal and collective, become inextricably intertwined with our built world. I guess, as happened at the start of this episode, buildings in a way always make noise. And to begin the conversation, I asked Ellen to try to recall when she first started listening to them. This is what buildings do. I suppose the, the point with me, whether I like it or not, is I'm terribly interested in what's right under my, my own nose and that right up to the nose type of um, searching. And certainly for the last no, long time, over a decade, my research might be termed hyperlocal. You know, so re really like the challenge and struggle of understanding what's right in front of me. So. It, it, it is funny that the, the stuff I'm working on right now, which is the architecture of Catholic Ireland from the 40s to the 80s, and what I had been looking at and continue to look at in terms of housing and the development of the suburban housing estate is the stuff that I grew up with and was my maybe my a priori, what was always there. And what I what I couldn't believe in my own research is that it, it didn't always exist. You know, it, it was at one point made with a full set of intentions and a full set of influences and priorities, economic and social. And and so I, I suppose I find that really interesting that these things that are, are surrounded, surrounding me, these and it is very much things. These are these are everyday fabrics, you know, the material of everyday life and there's very little that you could celebrate in my upbringing around the Dundrum area, 1960s suburb, as being architecture with the capital A, yeah. you know, these, these grand uh, scenographies, of city making. It was the opposite, really. And um, I, I think probably the most 
architectural element of my upbringing would be the hedges, those waxy green hedges of the Grisselania of South County Dublin. Yeah. These instant uh, bright green, evergreen waxy hedges. And, and that formed very, I suppose, in a way, very architectural uh, frames to the to the road, the roadways, not streets, roads. And between those and the Dublin mountains and maybe concrete tiled pitched roofs, that's that's the architectural language. And so you grew up in Dundrum and you talked before about moving between that house and your grandmother's house and so, those kinds of trips and what you observed and learned on those. Yeah, so so we, we grew up in a really busy, happy family of five kids in Dundrum and we only ever lived there and, and my, my mother still lives there and it was a it was a place they moved into. My mum and dad is their mar- their marital home and, and we stayed there forever. Um, and really only move and that that really would have framed my 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 horizon running fairly wild around Dundrum of the 70s and 80s and maybe of course not maybe going to school but that that kind of landscape was broken only by you know the the Sunday trip to mass and um, so the the local the local church, the, the place of public authority and trips in the car to the two grandmothers. So one grandmother was over in Glasnevin and one gra- grandmother was over in um, Castleknock, just outside the gates of the Phoenix Park. And those two houses in a, in a very kind of bachelor, Gaston Bachelor, poetics of space way, where you've got your garret, you know, your attic space and your, your cellar and you must have all of those as, as to be a truly vertical person, to, to dream and to be at once rooted in your geology. Those those houses of the grannies would have formed that imagination. And I was always an avid book reader, novel, fiction reader, really. And always I, I and to this day, position myself in whether I'm reading pretentiously a Nabokov novel, I'm in Castle Knock, or I'm reading whatever at the moment, a, a, an Anne Enright, for instance, and I find myself in my nana's, yeah, you know, Alexandra Strain, red brick, and in in Glass Nevin. So, those houses broke from the more everyday suburban reality of nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties Dundrum, and then as well as those houses, these are all kind of spaces of the of 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 the home and the home is imagination and all of that. But then, as well as those we always went to mass and, and mass was a big thing and we were forced to go to mass so it was a really usually quite quite a painful experience you know you felt you were definitely you know trapped for that 45 minute hour um, and we would move, have moved like most people living in Dublin at that time who went to mass you would have moved between these kind of late 19th century churches fairly bombastic ugly things you might say occasionally we'd go to something maybe a bit better like a Patrick Byrne church in Rat Mines or we'd end up in a really interesting brand new church at the time maybe we'd just still sm- smell the cement dust an early 1980s suburban Dublin church where you might be able to move a wall and turn it into a community centre or into a bigger nave so I, I was definitely aware of those big buildings mostly out of kind of childhood boredom and daydreaming and looking up at mm. at, ro- at roofs, you know, and trusses and things like that, and examining glass, stained glass, and and some of the churches were, had very good moments in them. Now, looking back, um, the church in Ballantyre has really good Patrick Pollan glass and things. So, you know, we it was all creating the mosaic of one's 
aesthetic sense, but more than anything, really, you're imaginary. Yeah. And what do you think it was, though, about those things and that time? Because uh, there are a lot of people who would have experienced that kind of oscillation, let's say, between the intense domestic memory, particularly to a grandmother or grandfather's house, which is very special, I think, in terms of being a child. And then I would also personally have shared that kind of, I wasn't forced to go to mass, but I voluntarily used to go on a Sunday to be part of some kind of uh, institution or ritual or some other thing. And churches are remarkable pieces of architecture because, as you said, they do capture that level of imagination and a sense of otherness, and that's their intention, you know, when you get over the the religion and the politics of it all, uh, the buildings are there. But what is it about you, do you think, that that made those things register? Is that something you've thought about? Because it's easy to look back and say, yeah, that's that's clearly where I got my my passion for architecture, my interest in the buildings. But Well, I would say that, I, that none of that registered at the time as mm. being of interest. You, you know, for me, buildings and interiors and, uh, you know, built environment landscapes were all about feeding my my mind's eye in the space of the novel. So it was always as as a reader. And later, I suppose I became something of a writer, though I really struggle with with writing. And so for me, architecture was only ever that. So when I was in my granny's, you know, it it was all, you know, I and, and it wasn't uh, conscious. It was really pre-conscious or supra-conscious. And then I really, ado- I really adored my dad more than any than anybody you know in the world. And I'd sit in the car with him and go anywhere with him. And he'd drive over to his mother in Glasnevin. So we'd cross the city, and I'd just look out the window, and I I would take in the flats, and and but they were very much an other, and they weren't my place. So they were very exotic and very unfamiliar, or. It's very, I've been very interested in the role of the surrealist object and how it's about kind of defamiliarizing the familiar. And I think that process used to happen for me a lot in the car, this kind of transformation as we would drive. But there was no way that I was conscious of being interested in buildings, not at all. And even to this day, I really struggle with my interest in buildings. <laughs> and I find architecture just really too difficult. I'm, I, you know, it. it I, I don't understand it. I really struggle with it every day. I struggle with it. I didn't study architecture, so I have to work doubly hard to get on top of it. And that's that's a big part of 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 who I am as a teacher of this of this stuff of buildings. And I continue to use them a little bit flippantly, I would say, as texts. For me, buildings are you know, almost as I, I try to I try to turn them into something that we can read. You know, I try to give them a novelistic yeah. sense that we unf- unfold them and turn their pages like like, you know, we would with the book and how we look at an elevation is like that. And how we move through a section, you know, is like turning the pages of a book because I don't understand buildings. So so really my my introduction to interrogating architecture in a conscious way came after leaving secondary school yeah. um, and that was through the teaching quite traditionally very archly traditional teaching of the art history department in trinity and namely the architectural historian of the piece eddie mcparland so talk a little bit more about trinity then you decided to go to study the history of art and architecture so how did that come about 
I would say that when when we were in school, I was very into art and literature and I had a brilliant teacher in secondary school who made us write a lot you know, for, for English every weekend. And so definitely buildings may have come into the purview at that point, but really it was about drawing, drawing and reading, reading. So when one was making choices afterwards for school, it was to go to art college or to do something more humanities based, if you like. And my parents were terrified of NCAD and the potential of, of, of just, just turning into what they perceived from their perspective as, as some kind of crazed, uh, drug ridden uh, or drug addled, overly creative environment. And that they kind of shoo shooed me away. Having, having gotten into NCAD, I was encouraged to go to the politer environs of Trinity and read English and history of art and architecture. I had no idea at that point that history of art uh, would 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 be about challenging or, or would be about the challenge of of understanding buildings. It was fairly a, a fairly polite world of painting analysis, I reckoned. And I, I suppose I was I wasn't that motivated by 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 an awful lot of traditional painting and traditional art history. So so after a few months there, maybe after the first year, it was quite clear to me that the more interesting part of the side of that, that whole degree was this, these, there, there were two really brilliant teachers, Roger Staley and Eddie McParland, who made you really grapple with the objecthood of a building. And none of us had a clue. You know, we were, would have been coming from the softer side of of an arts education or with, with arts mm. interests. So, you know, there, you know, there, there would have been a, a, a tendency to be, you know, fearful of maths and such and technical drawing and things like that. So in, in within the humanities sector. So it was really, it, it was, it was totally unfamiliar. Um, and so it was in that space of this really rigorous teacher, really in the form of Eddie McParland, that my interest in buildings became something conscious and um, explicit. Okay, so as is often the case, it's the people you encounter that inform your direction in the work. You arrive in to do one thing and you end up coming out with, with something else. But I would say, yeah, for sure, that Eddie was without a doubt the kind of agent for me and the generator of the interest. But very, I probably a couple of years into it when one had the confidence to realise that there was a lot of it that I was naturally rejecting. And we were being taught to kind of reconstruct as per those questions of art history, which are around provenance. Who made this? For whom was it made? Who paid for it? And then, of course, the question I've always been more interested in is when was it made? And maybe a little bit of why it was made. But that would really be kind of segueing into who made it and for whom? Who's the patron? Mm. and who's the architect. So we, it was all taught to us really through the lens of the gifted protagonist and, and all very male. And we were taught in a you know very, very male environment, albeit most of the students were female. It was kind of considered to be something of a finishing school. And a, a lot of British students who didn't perhaps make it into Oxford or Cambridge would, would find themselves in this degree. So there was, a, there was a particular clientele in that history of art degree, there's no denying it. And they were, they were those kind of those archly traditional art historical categories that we were pursuing. We weren't at all considering architecture as the frame of our lives, that there was some kind of psycholog psychological or emotional or, or, you know, it was all very kind of functional and very, very formal. 
Um, and, and I suppose it became really brilliant when we began to marry the spaces around us, those glorious quadrangles of Trinity, with then Trinity's shockingly impressive um, records and manuscripts collection, whereby every single brick and skirting board and glazing bar had an account it had it, 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 in these, these incredible account books. Yeah, an account of itself, yes, there in person. But amazingly, we were directed by the end of college into the monuments collection, which was the manuscripts room in one of the, you know, buried deep through the bowels of the Barclay. You had to come up the old library and in one of the pavilions, you got into manuscripts. And then you would order the account books. And they were written in this faint, florid, you know, faded ink, florid hand and, and you could every single person who was paid for every single object and every bit of work every bit of labor was all there intact because so remember trinity had this kind of private and continues to have this private element of of being you know being a private patron and has kept all of its records completely intact so mm. a little bit like much later in my phd discovering this 1939 housing document and marrying the document to the built evidence and re and then suddenly you're 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 somehow you're you're more than an observer you're more than experiencing the architecture you're becoming an investigator you're a historian hmm. so how was architecture just to understand it situated in the kind of conversation about art at that time in within within trinity I mean, you now work in a school of architecture which doesn't situate architecture, let's say, in that art context. It's it's a whole different way of thinking about it, as you touched upon earlier. But I'm curious as to how it was just generally discussed. Was it considered an art, cultural practice? Yeah, was... I would say it was considered a cultural practice, but it was considered as a series of objects. And really, that and, and it was like the only art form that would marry the two together would be the altarpiece, for instance. And in the space of a Baroque church, you would have, you know, this total work of art where you'd have a synthesis of all of the arts. And at that point, the brilliant, quite brilliant painting scholar Peter Cherry would talk to the quite brilliant architectural scholar Eddie McParland and they would share their interests in 17th century Italian arts as a, as a synthesis. Um, but they were very much the objecthood of the building, the objecthood of the painting. They continue to be brilliant archaeologists, if you like, and really trying to understand form. And by holding tight to form, you can go deeper. And interestingly, there's been a bit of a turn back in that direction, maybe away from ideas, which is where I find myself in the School of Architecture, buildings as a, a and I suppose, well, just to, to jump back there, I, I, I went on to Cambridge and very much shed that formalist approach and even shed the archive approach, whereby I was taught by my next teacher, Dalibor Vesely, that architecture is not an object. It's never finished. It's fragmented. It's fragmentary. And always it is, it is a situation or it is situational. So I, I very much poo-pooed the approach I had gotten in Trinity at that point. And what I find interesting today is that we're, we're moving back to the objecthood of the building or set of buildings to understand the fabric. Again, let's think about the amount of concrete, the amount of stone, and let's really think about the quarry from which the building came. And, and so, so, so I find that really interesting that I'm going back again to that approach. So 
Buildings were very much divorced from their social purpose, that they would have had a social good. They were really, they, you know, and paintings barely had three dimensions. They're two dimensions, but you really try to understand the surface of them. And, and in their dimensionality, if they do have three dimensions, it's to do with their iconography and their message. So it's that really traditional way of understanding art and architecture. And they didn't really relate to each other, except no. that they were understood. They were to be understood by us as singular acts of genius, always by gifted male protagonists. Right. Which I would say there is a whatever about the return to understanding the relationship of the building to the quarry, I would say there's definitely a reaction against and a rejection, I would hope, well, an attempt to reject that notion that buildings are single works of genius by I, predominantly male protagonists. I would definitely say we're trying to get there. It's very hard to, to move away from it. I'm now in a new position teaching architectural history to young, new school leaver, mostly arch architects, first year architects, and I'm finding it really hard to do the so-called decolonizing of the of the canon because it feels to me like that needs to be established so as to dismantle it nearly but it's it's it, it what, what's very interesting at the moment we're we're looking at the medieval and what's beautiful is like there there are no mark there are no declarations of intent in the in these medieval buildings there's only mason's marks and we know there's a there's a you know there's an abbot driving things and there's gifted masons and, and so on. But there, this lack of declaration of intent is very freeing, you know, because I'm about to launch into kind of the, the humanism and architecture. And I'm immediately into the territory of Brunelleschi, Alberti, perhaps Palladio, you know, and, and on and on it goes. So it's 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 very tricky to free oneself from that. But we, we do really need to. And perhaps through the mantle or lens of material, we can do that. So we're thinking about the social purpose always, you know, which is very clear, say, in the medieval church, because you're thinking of it as the act of kind of the pilgrim and, and pilgrimage, you know, coming together and actually, you know, crowd control. And that suddenly becomes really interesting to everybody who's designing something today. Yes, I mean, I, I mean I'm not a historian in, in, in the way that you are, but I imagine one of the challenges is not looking at history with a contemporary lens and placing contemporary values on it. But at the same time, as you just said, unearthing the stories and the situations around which these things come to exist and come to produce. And that is a contemporary way of thinking about architecture and building. That's the building where much of contemporary discourse is trying to articulate that actually buildings aren't magic out of space and thin air, they don't just exist in photographs. There are these amazingly intricate, complex things which take form and find material and spatial form through all kinds of situations, some positive, some negative. And you can assess and understand historical or things that have come before through that critical framework, right? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think we do. And I think I would have inherited um, these these structures, um, actual physical structures, um, as 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 the act of, as we've said, genius, but wizardry, you know, uh, but but in, in actual fact, the wizardry is the complexity in their making of all these ordinary pieces, all these pe all these parts that make them up, and I think that's the only way that we can understand this anymore. I'm increasingly coming to 
reject the sense of, you know, the exceptional. And this is probably where I always was coming from what you might call maybe a very average suburban middle class uh, background. What, you know, of course, we know there's no such thing as average or normal and all of that stuff. We all have our social neural networks and our own psychogeographies. But considering in the first instance, common experience in universalism of, say, the domestic, for instance, and then breaking that up immediately and thinking, well, everything can be understood by you know social social norms or stratifications and class and, and all of those things. So I think it's really interesting to reject history as a set of exceptional acts by exceptional people um, in reaction to exceptional situations and think increasingly it's my own mantra to myself of to be good enough. I want to be good enough and not be perfect. And to stop that kind of capitalist striving for for perfection and achievement, achievement, and to be good enough, and to and to you know to reject that that whole idea of 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 brilliance and and oh and then you might say well are we all just going to be in a wash in a sea of 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 the mediocre, but what about all those ordinary people who washed the bed linen of that genius and cooked the dinners and all the people who quarried the the stone and and that's. We have to look at that more and more. And I think you guys as architects do naturally, you have to collaborate, you know, and, and you have to work with, with all sorts of technical people and, and all sorts of materials. And it, it can only happen that way. But those who construct the history and those writers are sitting alone in a room and they have to be sharp, witted enough and have the, have the mind and to be so singular. Um, and so they can't, it's very hard to remind yourself when you're sitting there writing on your own that all of this is completely about being good enough and many people making, making yeah. many things. I mean, that point about singular is interesting. Is there a pressure as a historian when you're writing? I mean, maybe there are many kinds of historians, but let's say there's, maybe these aren't even categories, but there's the academic one, let's say, who publishes and has the academic discourse to contend with and the politics of that. And then maybe there's a popular one who writes for an audience that perhaps is not academic and therefore won't be peer-reviewed and assessed in that context. I'm not saying those things are binary or have more or less integrity or anything. But is there a pressure to, to declare and to say, this is the history of this church in Carlo and there you go. Or this thing about being good enough. How do you, how do you negotiate the fact that really you never fully know, um, particularly when it comes to buildings, let's say, because as you said, there's always stories or contingent things like yeah. the builder I mean, who built it or the people who occupied it or changed it, that's it. behind the scenes. And we don't, and historians um, haven't talked at all about post-occupancy and we don't really know how to teach our, architect our students, our architecture students about the life after the building. And I remember interviewing an awful lot of architects, like brilliant architects, who were really frustrated in their buildings from the 1970s and 80s and how badly they were chopped up by subsequent users and how really these men were heartbroken, I say men, because they were all men, that I was interviewing for my PhD. And, um, you know, and, and I suppose that's, that's just one part of what you've, you've asked there. But we, we, I think increasingly we have to acknowledge as scholars or practitioners or whatever it is that we're doing, that we're doing something partial you know, and it's only we have to just try and be good enough 
and acknowledge the the partialness of everything. I mean, there is that um, Michel de Certeau business that I used for a long time that you would write about a singular situation and let and give it um, even in, in its specificity that it would point to a kind of a general sense of knowing so that by, you know, hanging something on on a hook and then that that hook would be so a microcosm would lend itself to a, a understanding a wider national history. And I, we certainly would have used that in my work with an incredible team at 14 Henrietta Street, where you look at this one house and all the lives that were enabled in this house or unfolded or were disclosed in this house then shine a light on the national history across three, 300 years. You know, so, so and every single, you know, you can look at every single transaction, a woman buying a bag of sugar, I'm, I'm misquoting um, Levevre in this, looking that woman buying a bag of sugar and that all, all that happens in that exchange eventually points to the social priorities, the economic stresses of her time at that moment in whatever 1950s Paris or wherever that photograph's taken that he's looking at that. So 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 there is there's there is a specificity in the history I write, but also I need to acknowledge increasingly that it's partial. Mm. So what do you think your job as a historian then? In say let's say in contemporary Ireland, in terms of what like our historic like just architecture in Ireland now. How would you describe that? It's like an interview now. Yeah, Proper well, interview. I mean, like for me, you know, you started talking about this going like, why Why did you as a child growing up in the 70s and 80s get so much out of your environment, which we could say was so bread and butter and maybe bland and so kind of, you know, repeated in every suburb around the country? And how did I find so much um, to mine in that and continue to find so much to mine in it? And I would see my job as persuading those people around whom I grew up, like my siblings and, and others, of the of the value of so much of the envi- built environment from that period. And I'm talking about post-1940. And of course, this is, you know, my other mantra, which my new mantra is being good enough, but the mantra of, and you know, I think another thing is becoming it's okay to repeat yourself if, if it's worth repeating. Mm. And so this is the thing I will keep repeating is that these buildings are caught in a value hole in that they're not old enough to be considered historically significant and yet they are too old to be workable, valid uh, vessels for, for whatever it is we do, work, worship, play in the 21st century. And so the sustainability paradigm is coming in and nipping them in the bud. So their floor to ceiling heights are too mean. So do we demolish? These churches are out of scale, which means they're out of time. So do we erase them from from the from the built environment record? So I see my job as asking those questions before those demolitions and the reckless adaptation happen, but never to call for preservationism for its own sake and you know the freezing in aspect of the built environment but to to be thought to think uh, to be considerate and not to dismiss it so I would encounter really I'm, I'm being maybe unjust to my to my colleagues to my fellow people growing up in Ireland at the same time as me but we we do seem to be a quite a a, a, a lot of visually illiterate 
especially around that more recent material that is our built environment from the 1940s. And so I would really like to lift the veil of that visual illiteracy um, and to make us see what has been made by those maybe immediately before us and to try and understand questions of what they were looking at, intentionality, questions of influence, economic priorities, technological tendencies and all of those things before you demolish. So just pause for reflection and pause for thought. So that that would be what I would see the job of the historian, my my type mm. of history, um, which is really just a bit of critical analysis rather than history. I really feel I haven't done anything as high flown as, you know, constructing history. But it, it, it is about kind of pausing and going, hang on, this stuff didn't happen in a vacuum. But there was a whole load of artistic thought and reflection and intentionality. Two questions come out of that. One is, when does history start being history when it comes to architecture? For example, I know there's very little written about, or possibly not enough, about the influence of the last economic boom on architectural culture in Ireland. I mean, it's not that well written about or critiqued. And that's history. There are people alive who don't really remember anything, for example, about Temple Bar Group 91 existing, and yet they're critical on our history. There's some stuff written, but not a lot. So I'm just curious about the thing when you're talking about the 70s and the, the 60s, 70s and 80s, and you said they're not old enough. Yeah. What's the culture that says, you know, yeah. well, where's the tipping point? that we? And it leads me to my second question, which is to do with taste. Is it sometimes to do with what we, not that we're illiterate, but also that there might be a sense of snobbery or some question of taste going on that says, well, actually, we will strive to protect this interior, but not this one from the 1950s because it's ugly tells my granny had or something. For sure. Yeah, it's really interesting. Both those questions. I mean, when I was think when I was talking about those other periods, I was thinking of the 40s, 50s, 60s. Yeah. And I wasn't okay. even touching on the 80s because <laughs> we don't know what to do with the 80s. And no. we're trying to construct it at the moment more than Concrete Blocks Volume 3, which is 73 to 2000. And the 80s is like a black hole of 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 commentary. We don't we don't know as in we will fall into it. And, and actually, as against the 90s, there's so much to talk about with the 90s and it mightn't have been written that brilliantly yet, but we still have commentators like Shane O'Toole and, yeah. and also the lived, you know, all of this is, is still living and continuing to evolve from that, from that way of thinking. But the 80s, 70s and 80s, we, we don't, I mean, the 70s were coloured by the ascension into the European community or the economic community, EC it was, was at the time, perhaps if Rem Kulas is right, that that's the kind of start of globalisation. We had the oil crisis, the Yom Kippur, we different governments coming in. So there's a lot of fruitiness about the 70s that makes it interesting to yeah. talk about. The 80s, we don't know what to say. It seems to be like that black kind of recession when we all ate kind of fake mashed potato and things like that. But um, so, so when history gets written, it strikes me as the generation before us, you and I being similar age, born about 73, I think, we're giving the secrets, the crown jewels away. I can edit that out. But, uh, edit that out. Um, but the generation before us that I feel kind of baton was passed on, literally it was the brilliant work of Sean Rothery to me, 1900-1940, he wrote that history and passed the baton on to me. But in, in, a, in a bigger way, trajectory, it would have been Eddie McParland and his generation writing the history of 18th century Dublin, 
in the 1970s, which then would have begin, begun to stop the demise and, and destruction of George and Dublin bit by bit eventually. So in that act of the, of the, the Georgianists, the act of rationalising, intellectualising a period of, of architecture slowed down and changed the value system. So in comes the so-called expert, rationalises, intellectualises, thus gives value to. And that then is the, is the start of the shifting of value. And so what I felt needed to happen with the 20th century was we need to turn to uh, the common experience, the universalism of the fact that these buildings made up the backdrop to all of our lives, to our parents' lives, our uncles and aunties and all of those people. And that that common experience might might be made more clear and explicit through folklore and storytelling. So by turning to storytelling, we could then rescue the value of these buildings and we could also intellectualise and rationalise them, just like they did in the 70s with the 18th century. And by doing that, we give pause and we put value on them. So that's the kind of the first thing that needs to happen. So that's kind of when that intellectualization and rationalization starts to happen, then the history, it begin, these buildings begin to be deemed history. Then the other question around value is extremely complex and value, as we know, is rooted in, in you know, so, social neural networks, and all those psychogeographies. And while there is kind of common experience and universalism of the domestic, for instance, immediately, you know, you're from a flat and I'm from a suburban house. And, and I'm not I'm from a terrace as against a, you know, a mm, semi yeah. And so straight away, the taste becomes comes into it and is and value is there. It's 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 riven, really, you know, by questions of taste and value. And, and so and it's socially stratified without a doubt. And so in terms of teaching or in terms of uh, mediating or communicating or or figuring out how you get people to almost admit that as well, because some people have these, uh, including myself, I mean, we all have these kind of preconditioned or conditioned attitudes to things that have come out of our own social and cultural and economic status, uh, where we've gone to school or who we know and all that. Some things are not in our control and some things are. But as a teacher then, how do you, do you just start to offer a context for how people become aware of that and become aware of those kinds of perhaps biases to saying something from 1975 is really ugly because it's grain made of concrete to bring it down to something quite pragmatic that's you know quite rampant in the city right now and say well okay yeah get it totally understand you might think like that but here are the other values that you could attach to this i mean this is kind of his- history as activism in a sense we're trying to kind yeah. Of mediate. yeah well i think that is exactly it it is history as activism and it is it's again to paraphrase dalibor vesley my teacher in Cambridge, who, who, who says it's not, it sounds so cliche, but history is not the past, but the depth of the present. And in studying, for instance, the Catholic Church at the moment, those that were built from 1940 to the present day, we are always um, acknowledging that their, their, their social, their function may be much less relevant today. Um, than it was uh, when they were made and and also that they're far too big and that they're empty and they've got leaky bits and you know all of those things are happening they're unsustainable to 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 maintain 
but you you do need to turn around and look at what what brought them about and I suppose you would always offer that to the student and you would completely contextualize and think about intentionality and put yourself in those shoes if you could and of course it's all relativist and relative so you, you you're you're constantly you know it's almost like a series of apologies you know but but it, it is a process of contextualizing I, I don't think there's a single thing bringing us back to that point about met the medieval where I am on on this conjecture the survey at the moment of western architecture that I'm teaching the first years and so you can you can speak about Clonmacnoise and the beauty and you can speak about it as being you know you you need students to go there and see this place in its natural beauty because the natural the riverine setting leads to, you know enhances the integrity and the authenticity and you can also talk about the new lidar technology that has led and the documentary evidence means Clonmacnoise is you know one of the biggest settlements outside of 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 Dublin in in you know and it it throws a light on urbanism in Atlantic Europe, but it's actually about understanding the role of of Holy Jerusalem in at the ev- trying to build to evoke Jerusalem, mm. which is not something that we can get at all. Being people in twenty twenty two, we do not understand the individual as a deprecated being that's only there for you know for the world ever after the eschaton and the role of Jerusalem in that sense so it's 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 impossible to strive to understand that but all we can do as teachers is lay it out there and give some sense of Mm. the meaning in that context of you know a way of making hundreds and hundreds of years ago yeah speaking of teaching and maybe also learning I mean you've had three at least three campus campi in your life and more besides because you've studied them and uh, and they've done research, but you mentioned Trinity and Cambridge and now UCD. Do you want to talk a little bit about your different experiences of those places as places of teaching and learning? Yeah, so Trinity, as I say, would have been probably the most formative because I would have gone in there as a 17-year-old and graduated as a 21-year-old and then come back in my mid-20s to try and figure out what was going on again and became a teacher and then was a lecturer there in the early 2000s and really kind of learned my trade in in Trinity within the uh, circumstances of of art history but I took a break in between times and you know would have traveled and certain buildings would have had big great importances and and I suppose every summer when we were students we would have got I would have gotten a bank loan and gone and lived in another city so in first year as a barely 18 year old went and worked in McDonald's and Place de Republique and Paris and you know encountered the Pompidou and my mind was absolutely blown Palais Tokyo and you know really homesick completely broke and you know you're trying to understand French and trying to understand the city and then the following summer did the same ended up in Rome and then the following summer ended up living in the East Village way before it was gentrified in New York so that that experience of of Trinity was punctuated by these very privileged summers. Now, you know, I I was always broke. Let me say, and we we're all, always doing about four or five part time jobs. So we, we you know didn't have money. It was extremely privileged, but always you know didn't have barely enough money to pay bills. And then moved on. I suppose when I was in Trinity as well, I got really into Jewish literature, Jewish art, art of the Holocaust. How do you come back after that level of trauma? 
Um, is there an architecture of the Holocaust? And, and all, all of those things. Uh, I did my you know dissertations on those things and got a small scholarship to go backpacking around Israel, rather, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv and, and elsewhere. So there was all of those things happening. And through those different Don Quixote uh, uh, travels, uh, encountered this very strange outsider architect by the name of Frederick Kiesler, who's an Austrian modernist later a New Yorker. And he was designing these egg houses, mm. these, the endless house. And saw an exhibition by him, of him rather, a retrospective in the Pompidou in 1996 and really fell from hook, line, sinker and began to research him and discovered his widow alive in New York and searched her out and became really friendly with her, Lillian, and named my first child after her, Lillian Kiesler, mine's Lillian Quinn. And uh, anyway, became just had this really rich relationship with, with the Kiesler Foundation and and, and then brought that research um, to Cambridge and did a master's, a research master's in Cambridge. And all of the, the way the traditional architectural history had been built up in Trinity was then pretty much dismantled in one fell swoop by Dalibor Vesely and Peter Carl and Wendy Pullen, whereby formalism was poo-pooed. Um, and it was all about why, where's, what is the meaning? And it was because it was it was a master's within the School of Architecture, not mm. in the Department of Art History. So we understand how things are made. We don't need to know how things are made or why they look or what they look like. We want to know why they were made. So that was fascinating. And then came back to Trinity and got a job there and decided to teach that way of thinking to the art historians. Now, I did it pretty abysmally, I would, I would say. It was really, really difficult because I didn't really understand it myself. But, and, and, and then, so there was this kind of arch traditional object, architectural history as object. Then there was the, the why in, in, in Cambridge. And then what, what really came to it, the last piece in the puzzle for me was really getting my hands dirty with the archives, which happened only when I decided I would turn my attention to post-1940 Irish architecture. Because what I was confronted with there was this vast archive. Every single organisation had an archive. The Royal Institute of Architects of Ireland had an unmined archive. Every church building had an archive. Every hospital had an archive. Every school, the Office of Public Works had an archive, none of which had been looked at except for by the likes of historians like Mary Daly, who'd been looking at the Department of Local Environment. And there was a whole load of archive that was you know, hidden away due to redress boards and that uncomfortable, very recent history we have with the Catholic Church. Loads of archive hidden away, loads of the, the sisters' orders, their archives hidden away. But so there was all this archive that needs to be mined, but then there was this absolute massive amount of built evidence as well mm -hmm. that had no value, that was so everyday, that was so bread and butter. So I took it upon myself to kind of bring the two together. So that was kind of the last piece in the in the puzzle. So they were the that was the the Trinity, the kind of around the world whistle stop tour and the, the Cambridge. And then the third campus that has had a big significance on um, my work is, of course, Belfield, mm -hmm. UCD, and then the particular Bijou, strange little peripheral quad world of the Masonic School of Richview, the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy here in UCD. But my, my job back into, my way back into UCD 
was from my work in the Tenement Museum as a, as a kind of a postdoctoral consultant. I got a gig to help the Research and Innovation UCD to look at how UCD has occupied Belfield over time to celebrate its 50 or so years at Belfield. So I became the curator, for want of a better term, of Belfield 50 in 2019 and then that grew into an academic post but I began to really look at what had happened here and how this fascinating story of this outsider who ended up kind of for want of a better term defecting from Poland this young Polish architect Andrzej Wehert and his partner at the time she followed him over later later his wife Danuta Kornaus Wehert how they came over and really made the the campus with a local Irish firm, uh, Robinson Keefe Devan. But you're here now in Richview and a couple of questions. It's not an easy path to kind of find somewhere that you can kind of call home because you said you got a job in Trinity, but I mean, precarity has been something that has been difficult and perhaps is understood well within academia or those people who might support academics. Uh, as yeah. part of their life but um it's yeah, been a hard so, one right yeah so i i like i would say i have had a it, it, i've been in a i was in a precarious situation let's say from 2008 to 2020 so i got a job in ucd a permanent job in ucd in 2020 12 years later now in, 12 years later since you got your phd or no since i lost a i i had a lovely lectureship in in trinity so i got that job really far too early you might say i got it in 2003 before i'd gotten a phd okay and so that was when the country was riding high and yeah. chuck feeney paid for a, a job in in a series of jobs in trinity and i got one of those jobs and i had no phd and then i went and had a baby and i very much felt with the you know, this is your fault, Helen. You don't have a PhD and you have a baby. And we're like, what, what, what are you going to do? You know, and so my job ended in Trinity in 2008. And I said, well, I've got to sort out this and get a PhD. And I really wed myself to research from that time onwards. But I had to keep working, obviously. And then I inconveniently had two more babies. But it was a combination of market forces and of the, you know, the economy going splat at the same time as me losing my position in Trinity in 2008, those bad old days, um, with, I'm afraid, the gender situation, the, the biology of going off and having babies. Um, so market forces, the country being in the state it's in, and my, my gender and my slowness, you know, that I was, I was doing something that... I, was huge trying to figure out the architecture of Dublin, Ireland, 1940 to 1970 or thereabouts, trying to do it right, uh, you know, not at all thinking it was good enough. And so um, I, I got the PhD in 2010, 2011, had a baby in 2011, had a baby in 2013 and stayed on in that peripheral precarious place for nearly 10 years more I suppose or nine years more and really began to struggle more and more with that and esteem was going by the day really and 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 actually I was invited to do international papers here and there now not much because I couldn't travel money wise or with children when I did go I remember going to something in Leuven and meeting um, my counterparts who were as who were well actually the the kind of moderators of this um, were guys ma males my age who had fantastic jobs in different universities in different countries 
And I remember feeling really, really, really gendered and really, really angry at that moment for the first time, probably around 2017. Because I, I did feel I kind of deserved it because I had gone off and had the babies and and all, and all of that mm. and that it was it was my fault and you kind of can't have everything. And I suppose I was a child of the 70s and my mother at her struggles and, you know, the, it was made very clear to me, you know, you don't get something for nothing, you know. So it was really around 2017 I began to get really, began to get angry about that. And I still had a few more homes to go to. I mean, I was working on the edges of Dublin City Council and the Tenement Museum and I was involved in all sorts of workshopping with children and all sorts of projects and I was trying to write two books and it was never good enough at that time and and, and I eventually got a position in UCD in 2020 and so the and I'm really not used to the end of the precarity and I'm you know in feeling a little bit foolish because one isn't quite sure what are the own demands you're self-imposing or what are the demands of the job and I'm, tr I'm now still and probably will be still trying to find that out for another few years to come. Mm. And is it do you think a, a case of the work simply not existing like the jobs not being there or I mean that's part of it right but it's do you think there's also yeah, what, what, like, what should change about well, that situation? Well, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, there one must be very careful, as in, oh, woe is me. The jobs weren't there. There was a massive freeze, right? I mean, I finished a job in two thousand and eight. There, there, there weren't jobs. There wasn't money. Don't forget, I also wasn't an architect, so, and I'm an art historian. So why should I insert myself in the school of architecture and? And also don't forget the very clear thing that's been happening in Irish architecture about how many people of my generation have been frozen out of public procurement processes and have been taking shelter themselves in the academic. So all these brilliant architectural practitioners had become brilliant architectural teachers to bolster their academic careers, you might, or their architectural careers, you might say. So that was going on as well. So, the, you know, there wasn't work for me, for somebody of, with my qualifications and outlook. Um, there was work quite comfortably if I was willing to, you know, move between peripheral engagements as as, as consultant. And mm. um, so so there wasn't work is the answer to that. And there would have been work had one been willing to move countries. And I suppose because of our attachment to a place here in, in, in Ireland, we weren't and we had a house and we had children and all of those things. So we were we, we had a lot of social capital in Dublin, didn't want to leave. But there wasn't work for an art historian. And, you know, why should there be in many levels? Um, and so I was kind of trying to reinvent myself by becoming a heritage practitioner and another kind of monetizing the role of the art historian or the architectural historian. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the kind of diversification of skills and tasks perhaps is a, is a strategy and probably quite a common one across many forms of, let's say, engagement with, with architecture. But I'm surprised yeah. to hear that you, and maybe touches on your earlier point about finding architecture difficult, about the kind of sense that you might have that why should you insinuate yourself within a school of architecture? What are you getting at there? What do you mean by that? Do you feel that history history doesn't merit or... Not that you don't think it merits, but it may be perceived that it doesn't merit the same position as, let's call it, professional practice. So that those two things are somehow considered parallel or... Well, I suppose I would I would put it down to a, on a personal level as well, that like, 
why would you employ a historian who's teach who's using buildings as texts when you can employ an architect who understands the bones of those buildings who will also make you look at history you know so a, a, an architect who's become a historian you know so so it does feel like even though i'm writing a certain type of history that has a certain type of authenticity perhaps and i bring a certain amount of integrity or you know evidence to bear why would you you know employ somebody now it's not to say that a school like this hasn't always welcomed in outsiders because I remember when I first came here I was taught by somebody who I think had been a chemist who then became an art an architectural historian so you know why the heck not it's absolutely it's absolutely right and good and we should you know be you know renaissance or poly or whatever and turn our hands to many things and I suppose an awful lot of this conversation because we are talking about you know it's kind of like memoir through buildings it is very personal and it's laying oneself bare so there, there is a sense of of me being you know a, an outsider or on the edge um of what is uh, an architectural community and that might mean that i can shine greater light than anybody in here if you like um so that's what i mean but i i do think that certainly from what I've encountered so far and whether rightly or wrongly I feel rightly if I'm having if I'm allowed to have an opinion I of course I am but that studio is front and center and something and and with that it takes it goes hand in hand with with different forms of of studying technology but that history is something very much to the side in terms of how it's understood in, in the School of Architecture. It's, it, you know, it's at the service of the designer. And I'm turning, I'm turning that to a benefit, to benefit me and to benefit the students and to really think about history, and many would disagree with this, as precedent. So what, like, how is history and why is history essential to the architect and make it really relevant to them from the outset. Now, maybe that cheapens it. It certainly reduces its relevance as something autonomous, you know, but um, I feel it, it is, and it's a word, contingent, it's only a word I learned probably about 10 years ago. I didn't really know what it meant, but it is, a, it, it feels like it is contingent. So what yeah. is, like, what is next for you then? At the moment, I'm calling this project um, Cement and Sacraments, and um it's spurred on, I'm working with the Department of Ultimology, which is this fictional um, department set up in the School of Art, of, it, set up in Trinity as a, as a department that looks at endings and death. Um, it, 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 it's not a real academic department, but they two are an artist and a curator, and together we are looking at the recent demolition of the Church of the Annunciation in Finglas West, which was finished as recently as 1967. Mm. And it was pulled down a few months ago. Uh, really, it ended. The demolition ended in December 2021. So it's like two, three months old. So you can still smell the cement dust. And we're making an artistic response to that demolition to throw a light on um, the question of of social cultural obsolescence of the Catholic Church, because really, the demolition of that church, I feel without being too alarmist about it, it represents, I think we're on the precipice of a demolition rally of these post-war uh, massive hall concrete churches that are ringing every urban centre in Ireland. And so what are we going to do about that? So there's social cultural obsolescence, but there's also 
the question of material obsolescence yeah. and the argument that was made was that the building was not fit for purpose, that it was all leaky and it was one of the most structurally sound buildings you'll ever find, just like Liberty Hall is. These are buildings are brilliant, you know, the brilliant uh, substructures and the really robust concrete mixes and all of that. So um, I'm using that, I suppose, as a as a singular moment. Um, maybe it could be called a metaphor, but it's more than that. And I really want to remove the build, the study from, you know, a purely historical in, in, intention, but that it would have a role to play in, in where we are, where the Catholic Church is in different dioc dioceses around the country um, and how these buildings could be adapted and to try and come up with solutions. So it's about doing the history, making an inventory, mapping, and then analysing the the embodied carbon, the sunk carbon, you know, it, it's kind of really getting a team of experts and then, you know, having making an artistic response, but then going a step further and turning to contemporary design and go, well, what can contemporary design do for you, the church, and respond to your social reality? Thanks to Ellen for being such a willing case study in our first ever live recording of What Buildings Do. We moved room, we squatted in somebody else's office, we waited for the building to stop making noise, but we got there in the end and certainly I enjoyed taking the time out to talk about history with Ellen and I hope you enjoyed the podcast too. Over the next while, we will be sharing some things mentioned by Ellen on the podcast over on the Instagram page. You can find us there under the handle at story double underscore building. Because, in case you missed it, What Buildings Do is now part of Storybuilding, a platform for the critical discussion of architecture in Ireland, recently launched. You can find out more on storybuilding.ie and check out the great design work by Eamon Hall, whom I would highly recommend to work with, if you can. We're back in two weeks, so in the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes, subscribe there or on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The music you hear at the start and at the end is by Sinead Finnegan. Until next time, stay safe and maybe listen to the noises that the buildings make. <laughs>